Hello and welcome to the Precision Microcast, episode 18. Today we'll be talking about an obscure machine tool from DMG Mori called the NN1000. We'll be looking at the history of the Citizen Machinery Company, and we'll be talking about our precision problems. The machine tool we'll be talking about is a diamond scribing machine that Moriseki made, and it's called the NN1000. This was a project developed through the Digital Technologies Laboratory, which is located in Davis, California, next to the Moriseki plant, or DMG Mori plant, and uh, is also kind of in conjunction with UC Davis. Uh, Moriseki and UC Davis have a pretty in-depth partnership, uh, and UC Davis helps them research new machine concepts. Uh, the NN1000 is most of the information out there is in the form of research papers. It is used a lot to study vibrations and machine tools, and uh, that's where I was able to find a lot of the info I found about it. Uh, the reason I was kind of so keen on this machine is it's in the the diamond nano precision machine world, but uh, most of those machines have a lathe-like construction. Um, generally, there's a headstock kind of area that holds the part. It might have multiple axes, but uh, and then there's a tool end, and it could rotate the tool and move it in one or two axes. But for the most part, it it looks conventionally about like a lathe. Um, Whereas this doesn't quite look like any machine tool I've ever seen before. The the machine's construction is, like most diamond turn lathes, there's a a vibration base, uh, some air pads, and then a granite column or base sits on top of that, and then that's how the machine is constructed from that vibration isolated piece of granite up is the machine. And so uh, on the part side... The part sits on top of the C-axis, which rides on the X-axis. And so there's only two axes under the part. And then on the tool side, this is a bit like a handle on a picnic basket. So the handle can swap Mm. front to back, uh, and that gives you your A-axis rotation. Uh, But that same handle also moves in Y and Z. And then there's uh, linear motors on either side of that handle. So it's always being driven at the center of gravity, um, which was a big concept Mori was pursuing back then. Uh, and you see that in kind of in a lot of their machines. Uh, what, what's really fascinating about it, though, is how much symmetry this machine has. So a lot of machine tools, if you look at them from the front, there is left-right symmetry. Uh, well, this has it, so if you look at it from the side, there's also symmetry in that regard as well. Uh, and that's like um, a problem you run into on larger gantry-style machines where the gantry pillars might be wedge-shaped, have like a kind of a buttress to the rear, and they cause mm-hmm. a little bit of distortion in that squareness of the gantry as they heat up. And so... Uh, a more modern take is to make sure that it's symmetrical in, in both planes. And another machine you see that in is the Newhauser jig grinder. Uh, they were always really well known for having these very, very beefy gantries and uh, with kind of a 
buttress off the rear of them, but now it has front-to-rear symmetry on their newest model. Um, so as far as the actual machine tool, I don't know that it was ever anything that really made a big splash with users. This seems to be a research machine, and uh, the only the only instances you can really find of it are in, in uh, research papers and grant proposals. Uh, so the uh, UC Davis, they have three that are being used by the Millimeter Wave Plasma Diagnostics Group. They use these to support microwave research on their high-performance vacuum electronics. They also, I should note, have a Kern Pino, uh, but it seems like their uh, their NN1000s do some scribing and some milling. Uh, the milling spindle on this, I don't think is anything special. It looks pretty small, and I think it's just a small air spindle. Um, and there's no provisions for a tool changer. So I'd say this is really probably meant to do more scribing than milling, but it can do uh, the milling. For those who want a visual representation of what this machine tool looks like, you have to go to our Instagram where Adam's going to post um, some some sort of... Uh, schematics of how the the axes are constructed but what's interesting is this is completely different than any machine build i've ever seen and um part of that is is like the the symmetry obviously from a kinematic standpoint but also thermally it seems like they spent so much time trying to establish like very linear uniform thermal and predictable like thermal growth deformation in the machine um, but the expense is that where the tool is being held uh, in this sort of like a-axis picnic handle frame uh, it, it gets quite anemic like it gets quite sort of um, small and and un- unsupported even though there's no real cantilevers it does mean like because of this thermal symmetry concept it does mean that you're very limited in what you can do on the machine and uh, like in the preparation for for this segment, when we commented that this lab had a, a pyramid nano, Adam's like, "Oh yeah, they just use that for roughing," and that actually might be true. They they might just rough everything out on the pyramid nano and just take off microns on on this uh, scribing platform. Yeah, the one of the more interesting things I found about this is I found one running at a trade show exhibit. A picture uh and they put it in a air-conditioned enclosure the entire oh, wow. machine <laughs> that's so neat yeah and uh because these machines really do need a pretty high degree of climate control and but uh, you would assume like a typical trade show would be air-conditioned at least uh but it, it's just it's very cool to see it in its own little glass booth uh scribing away it could be just to protect all the fangirls as well like uh flocking onto the machine what i really like as well is the the compact size i mean it's not by any means a garage machine but uh because it's so small it's so tempting to like just say oh i could fit this in my garage but then you realize the facility cost to house something just like what we mentioned even just on the air conditioning side the facility cost is huge just to support this tiny little machine and a lot of the up uh, UP machines are like that. Like um, Kugler, for example, made historically made these these sort of high, ultra high precision milling machines, and uh, they're like cute sized. They're not massive, um, but 
the space you need to support that machine is massive and you might need a room within a room or in this case like a little tent within an exhibition hall so uh i was always curious like what this cost back in you know the day money uh and the nearest thing I could find supporting the cost was a research proposal from the University of Michigan who uh, was doing vibration analysis on couplings. And uh, it would seem that the amount they asked for, which probably closely correlates to the price, was $347,000. Um, and honestly, that doesn't seem like an enormous amount of money for such a high precision low quantity machine tool build um maybe that's just the price that research centers got but uh i don't know that seems like good value for a for a nano level uh machine tool like this so the obvious question i have for you adam is is why don't they make more of these or where did this research sort of put dmg mori now well that's the one thing i was kind of disappointed is i couldn't really find out anything because i mean we're we're pushing almost 15 years ago um but that was about the time that dmg mori and uh or mori and dmg i should say were becoming one and i i think a lot of the fringe kind of got let go and uh they really kind of focused on what they do um maybe this was never something they intended to pursue as a product and really just uh they were using this as a, a way to help colleges study problems in machine tools. Um, but uh, I, I could never get a clear clarification on this as to what Maury's intent was with the project. Mm. I mean, even, I mean, this is just pure hypothetical at this point, but even if they learned just one or two things they could transfer to the standard machine tool line in terms of how to improve the accuracy or how to manage vibration or whatever they were researching, if they can just transfer one or two lessons learned into their standard lineup, that would be enough because they make enough machines on an, on an industrial scale to justify that sort of incremental improvement. Yeah, one would hope they, they gleaned a lot from this. Uh, just really, it's interesting anytime you see something that f feels unfamiliar in this industry because, I mean, we've really kind of honed in on on machine tool design layouts at this point. And so it's, it's unusual for me to see a machine frame that uh, I don't recognize. And I, I can't really see a clear lineage of what that was derived from. And so I, I, I really respected that. So for our history segment, we're going to talk about a company called Citizen. And many of you may know Citizen from their machine tool fame. They make sliding head machines. And many of you will also know Citizen from uh, their watchmaking company called Citizen, where they manufacture watches in Japan. And uh, this, is, this is like a really, really big and broad uh, topic. And we're going to try to just hone in on some, some very basic points. But before we do, I'll give you a, a little quick overview of uh, the history of Citizen. And then we can jump into some sort of uh, extrapolated you know, insights into, into how they developed industrially in Japan. So Citizen um, started off as a watch research group in 1918, uh, which is 
amazing to me because back in 1918, you still needed to research watches. Um, watch Industrial watch production was sort of coming to a fore in the turn of the century. Um, and Japan being a relative newcomer to sort of industrial processes in general, but specifically in watchmaking um, was, uh, yeah, maybe let's say a decade or two decades behind the Swiss and the Americans. And the Americans were at that point the strongest in the watchmaking game with brands like Elgin and and lots of railroad watches, lots of pocket watches. Um, so a citizen to get into the industry had to set up a research institute. Uh, so 1918, they sh- set up the Shokosha Watch Research Institute, which then in 1930 became Citizen Watch Company Limited. And um, uh, yeah, without sort of jumping the gun, what you notice through the history is that this, uh, how can you say, this like uh, startup grassroots um, fighting spirit that the Japanese watch industry through Citizen had um, meant that they had to establish pretty much every single uh, related and parallel industry to support their watchmaking efforts. So in 1936, just six years after they've been established as Citizen Watch Company, they started to produce their own machine tools, um, which to me is wild. Like it would almost be like SpaceX, um, and maybe they have. I'm not really educated on SpaceX, but it'd be like SpaceX developing rocket making machines. Um, and I'm sure they have rocket-making processes. That's what they do. But specific machines, they, like no one's developing sliding head lathes now because it's done. But, you, you know, if you're starting off an industry in Japan, you have to start thinking about these things. And one of the reasons why they had to produce their machine tools is because the Swiss uh, would not sell their industrial knowledge to the Japanese. And um, there's uh, some fascinating sort of uh, industrial espionage and history associated with the Japanese going to Switzerland and trying to sort of figure out how to make watches. Because we also have to remember back then, in nine, in, from you know, the turn of the century up until Second World War and probably up until 1980, mechanical wristwatches were the only way that you could tell the time or keep the time on your person. Uh, so this was a big industry, you know. Nearly every single person on on the world in the world would would be would own a watch, a mechanical wristwatch, and so it's a massive industry, and that's why the Japanese were very interested, not just to you know to make watches, but to supply their entire domestic domestic population. So, yeah, citizen machines developed from this in 1936. This is a very roundabout way of saying that. Um, but what's fascinating to me is, as you go through this history is that it took them almost 25 years to sell this machine externally. So these machines were purely for internal use. And I'm sure they could have sold them earlier, but in 1961, Citizen Watch Company Limited starts to sell these machine tools externally. And that's what we sort of see as the start of Citizen Machinery Company Limited, which is owned by Citizen and uh, then the history sort of establishes then they released the D16 in 1970 um, and then there's some key touch points like their uh, establishment of international uh, trade organizations and Marabeni Citizen Simcom 
MCC, which is in the US, is, is a very notable one. And uh, it's notable because currently, according to Citizen, um, so don't take my word for it, take Citizen's word for it, they have the largest market share for sliding head Swiss lathes in America. So this move in 1985 to sell machines to the US eventually fruited in, as being the correct decision. Um, and so, yeah, from, from that point onwards, they release all sorts of different lathes and we're not going to go too deep into their you know, entire catalog. But long story short, because they were based in watchmaking, they made very small diameter Swiss Swiss lathe, sliding headstock lathes, starting with uh, the R01, which is a one millimeter machine, which they don't really produce now. You can sort of buy one, but it's basically an R04 with a, with a conversion kit. And they go up to 32 millimeter lathes that you can actually expand to go a bit, a bit higher than 32 millimeters. And, and even they even make multi-spindle lathes and uh, in, in in combination with Miano, who um, they they joined with in 1985, um, they also make chukka, or that's what they call them, chukka standard lathes for uh, sort of heavy heavy duty applications. Um, so they have the like a bit of a spread in their in the machine catalog. The uh, kind of grassroots build-your-own-machine-tool company to support your product thing is also similar to what Brother did, isn't it? Like, they built their drill tap centers for their electronics divisions. Uh, I'm curious to find more instances of that within Japan, but uh, I don't know. That, that's just, uh, I, I really appreciate that attitude um, when somebody won't help you do what you need to do just doing it yourself. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think they didn't have much choice. Like, uh, if the Swiss sold them the machines, um, and this is theor- theorizing, I I still think that they wouldn't be able to provide the amount of machines that the Japanese industry would require um, in such a short space of time. So if you wanted, you know, every Japanese person to wear a watch, it's 200 ish let's call it 100 million watches i don't know the population stats but easily 100 million watches that's a lot of lathes that's a lot of turned parts that's a lot of industry and i think the swiss's ears would have even if they wanted to sell them initially they would have peaked up as soon as uh you know you get an order for like 100 tornosses per month um someone in switzerland would be like ah cancel um and that's exactly what happened you know they didn't sell these machines Karl Marx famously says that there's 54 professions required to build a watch. Uh, and that was back in sort of around the turn of the century. Um, watchmaking is very discretized. You have people that make, that become experts in making just one part. And they spend their entire career and entire life, you know, build up a company just making one screw or one pinion or one, you know, part of a watch or even even one process like heat treatment or plating or galvanic treatments to put color on dials. And what you realize quickly is that a watch, uh, it's not just machined components. It's not just parts that you put in mills and lathes and stamping, stamping tools. Uh, there's also electronics, especially in, you know, after the 1970s. There's... Um, hard brittle material components like the sapphire crystals that you know the, uh, that protect the watch face you have uh, especially in quartz watches you have 
a lot of um, uh, sort of esoteric things like quartz crystals that need to be grown on micro displays and jeweled bearings, for example. So alongside needing to manufacture a company, right, to manufacture machines, uh, Citizen had to establish other companies that would be able to manufacture all of these sort of more esoteric components. And that brings us to a company that's part of this Citizen umbrella. It's a sister company to Citizen Machinery, which is called Citizen Fine Device Co. Limited. And they're obviously based in Japan and they make high-end, very accurate parts and assemblies uh, that were probably driven from watchmaking, but now have established themselves into lots of different uh, parallel industries. So I highly recommend that uh, you go over to the Citizen Fine Device website and you can sort of peruse through a bunch of components and assemblies they manufacture. And it gives me like a very Sumitomo electric, Mitsubishi electric, you know, big Japanese monolithic company vibe where, you know, they might make plastic granules for, uh, for, for plastic injection molding all the way to like pencil ink cartridges to you know, uh, fifth generation fighting aircraft uh, parts and tanks. So it's, a, it's really like a big industry feel, especially on their corporate website. But you can see that all of the, the categories they're involved in have some links still back to watchmaking. So the crystal devices, for example, I'm just sort of going through in order, the crystal devices that's purely driven by needing a precise oscillation. And oscillation is, you know, the, the quartz oscillation is the foundation for uh, quartz mechanic, uh, quartz wristwatches, sorry, uh, but also used in like RF components or in other electronic devices that need to be able to keep time very accurately. Uh, so they grow their own quartz crystal and then they dice it up and put it in their electronic assemblies and calibrate it and, and so on and so on, um, which is a wild thing. You know, if I put myself in the shoes, I'm like running a small watch company, I would never do that. I would try to find a subcontractor that could. But this all points back to the fact that they had to establish the entire industry in, in Japan by themselves. Crystals are getting really popular with Gen Z. That might be like a <laughs> nice little side business for you. Yeah, your aura's off here. Have a quartz crystal. Also, interestingly, and if you go onto their website, you'll see this. Um, they make measuring instruments. And uh, this is attractive to me because, um, you know, as a bit of a sort of measurement geek or metrology geek, you're always looking for what else is out there. You know, Heidenhain makes something amazing. So do Mar and Tessa and so on. But no one really knows of Citizen Fine Device. I mean, people obviously do. They sell their products. But for, for a very long time, I had no idea that Citizen would be able to sell you an LVDT, for example. Um, or, you know, statistic process control modules that you can put into assembly process. Um, and they seem, at least on paper, to be incredibly accurate. So some of their LVDTs have a resolution of 0.1 micron. Um, and uh, the stated accuracy on these tools that they're making is in line with 
you know, what the German and Swiss would be making as well. Uh, very interestingly is I, I can assume that all of these uh, instruments were driven from uh, an automation as well as a sort of um, mass production need. Uh, but they're still available to buy and you can you can even get in touch with them and, and purchase single quantities of, of data capture units or um, displacement sensors and things like that. They make a one micron graduated uh, two or 50 micron total travel uh, dial dial indicator. And I think you need to get one just as, you know... <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's a nice looking indicator, but, uh, just kind of as a neat little watch machinist collectors thing. I think it'd be worth adding to your collection. Yeah. The, the indicators that they have that, like that one that you've just mentioned, it's massive. It's like, a, it's like a dinner plate almost. Um, and you can really see in between the graduations, you've got this sort of like a levering, um, resolution effect where the spacing between your graduations is huge. Um, and it's also fairly low force. I think it's like 0.5 newtons of gauging force, which is it's quite low. Um, I think, uh, yeah, my birthday is coming up. Maybe I should get something for myself. There's a gauge company in the U.S., Dorsey, that makes a uh, half micron indicator. And it's just their regular indicator, but with like a four-inch <laughs> bezel. And they're always kind of comical to see. So, Adam, what was your precision problem? Uh, making some more Aroa compatible fixtures. And uh, so typically when I do an Aroa project, I, I just put the hole pattern into a, a block of tool steel and attach the, the flexor. But I'm starting to realize that I'm setting myself up for failure because all the very nice Aroa fixtures I've made are not pallet changer compatible. So on this project, I need to put some small Hermann Schmidt vices uh, onto an Aroa pallet. And I thought, why don't we just use the pallet's Aroa cells? They're a little bit more expensive than my route, but um, this way, if down the road I ever get a pallet changer, they'll install directly. You know, I don't have to remake any fixtures. Uh, and so the idea was to cut a slot in the pallet, and the vice kind of sits in the slot. And that keeps it from shifting side to side. And then there's holes in the vise to attach it to the pallet. So really just a, a slot with some tapped holes. But I wanted that slot to be as central to the the zero point on the pallet as possible. And uh, how I got that, you know, you can really chase tenths or sub-tenths increments on the mill all day. But the, the thing to do is really just set it up on the grinder and grind one side of the slot rotate the pallet 180 degrees in the slot and the holder and the chuck and ride the other and rotating the pallet about the holder uh inherently makes the slot centered to as good as the pallet repeats on the holder uh and that just felt like a really uh robust way to get the centered accuracy i wanted no yeah that, that makes total sense um that you'd want that vice on a pallet uh, I always go backwards and forwards on uh, 
building custom fixtures that have future uh, applications that I like don't foresee straight away because um, it's you know it can take quite a bit of time to in- introduce some planned future capability but with a vice you're always going to use a vice yeah so no matter what palette changing machine you get you'll always use that herman schmidt vice and it seems like a no-brainer and the one gripe i always have with these row vices is if they aren't uh centered well like uh how can i explain like if you just bolt a vice down it's always going to be shifting around relative to the Aroa palette. And so the fixed jaw of a vice is going to be moving, you know, as you tighten it and move it. But having it constrained, especially like so centrally on axis, it seems like a perfect solution. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I don't know, I'm happy with it. And it was relatively quick, but uh, th- th- there's a real bargain on the Aroa brass palettes. You know, those are, like, unbelievably economical, and I use them a lot for kind of small, like, sub-100 piece runs of various parts, because it's a, it's a $40 fixture. Like, you can, you can set it aside and reuse it again, and mill a little off the top. Um, but the, the larger stainless palettes, those do start to get a little costly. Um, but, uh, um, I looked at vices that had the aroa integrated into the back and uh boy <laughs> those get expensive very quickly um and then the other problem is they're all kind of optimized for five axis machines meaning they have like a a fair amount of height to them um and i'm not in a place where i need that right now um so i was able to get the the stack up height way down by just buying a herman schmidt vice and bolting it to a pallet Mm. yeah um m5 micro on instagram john backland they've also done something with like an aroa mount um with a herman schmidt vice and that's very pretty it seems like such yeah i mean we've got something as well that we constantly use and it seems like such a no-brainer to have in any aroa ca- like catalog it's just so prohibitively expensive if you buy it from aroa <laughs> yeah uh, so it's been what, like maybe two years since you've gotten into Aroa? Uh, yeah, just about. So just about. What's the thoughts? What's your verdict? Uh, uh it's kind of like addictive. I'm, I'm on eBay way too much, <laughs> and I, I was never like a eBay guy, but uh, the secondhand market prices on Aroa chucks are so much better than new, and really they're not much goes wrong on them unless it's coming off like a ram edm machine and so it really is one of those scenarios where i'm quite comfortable to buy used and uh so i've bought and i bought a couple new chucks and i bought a couple used on ebay at a significant savings and uh i just kind of have it to the point now where there's a chuck for every machine and i have i have most of my repeat work on pallets um and that makes setup just kind of painless um, and I've even been able to pull off quite a few times where I'm, I'm concurrently running different jobs. And so, cause a lot of the, the knife parts I make, um, you're basically, you have like a near net blank that's water jet from a sheet of blade steel and, and you're, you're bolting it onto a pallet with lots of set uh, socket head screws. And that takes a while to change over. So 
if I can not have to build a second pallet for that product, but instead just stick another product's pallet in the machine, and I'm concurrently running two jobs while I'm changing the pallet over, that that's as much runtime as you can get out of a Haas mini mill, uh, but also it keeps me from having to make duplicate fixtures. So it, it's yeah. been working out really well. Uh, how, how many times have you fat fingered the program and run program one on pallet two? Never. Uh, <laughs> no, honestly, I, I was, I'm very afraid of myself doing stuff like that. Uh, mm. So I use the probe and it basically looks and makes sure if it's got the right pro or uh, pallet in the machine. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And what about, uh, I mean, by, by now I think everyone's seen your micro shaping a row amount video. Um, was that something that like was unexpected or was it planned from the start to have a rower on a grinder? Well, I always wanted to like do more shaping on the grinder. Uh, but I also wanted to get a high speed NSK spindle and to be able to like vertically grind on that machine. And I was thinking like how, you know, making some kind of elaborate mount to get a spindle held vertically. And I thought, well, those NSK spindles are pretty small. Um, I think it's like a a 30 millimeter shank. And you could almost just put the spindle in an Aroa pallet. And uh, that gives you the benefit of you can mount the spindle vertically or you can mount it in line with the table's reciprocation. Which means if you had a part on a spin fixture... Uh, coaxial to that spindle you could id grind using the tables reciprocation um and so that's something i want to i i don't think i want to buy a high-speed spindle used i feel like that's i don't know that that gives me the heebie-jeebies so i want to take a closer look at uh the nsk catalog and figure out what all i want out of that so the game plan then is the spin fixture should be on an Aroa mount as well. And then you should have a dressing diamond on an Aroa mount. And then you never have to use the magnet. The magnet stays on and you just yeah. switch everything yeah. out and you dress your ID spindle and then put the part back on. Yeah, the, uh, I don't know. I, I I don't think I would have such a huge problem with that. I even considered at one point, I have a 12-inch magnet on my CNC grinder. Um maybe going down to like a six by six magnet and then having a, a row of chuck next to it. Um, Cause like you put an Aroa pallet on top of the magnet and then your pallet on top of the chuck, like you get a serious <laughs> stack up all of a sudden. Um, it's literally like Lego, but for big boys, it's, uh, yeah. it's equally as addictive. You're right. I mean, eBay is not kind to you at like late at night when you're just perusing and say, oh, that's only 300 bucks and you suddenly have to ship it from the US and use Adam as a drop shipping service. Anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there. But um, I'm glad that you're enjoying Aroa. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I'm glad you pushed me into it. It's, uh, I don't know, it's one of those things I knew I needed to do, but I also knew it was going to be a ton of work. And it was, um, but life's a lot easier now. Okay, Josh, what was your precision problem since we last spoke? Uh, so the main, the main problem that we've solved um, is in regards to our spindle scribing uh, on our HD, on our micro HD. And um, Adam is actually kind of, he's 
kindly uh, hosted me on his YouTube channel. So you can really talk, hear me talk way more in depth about this on Adam's YouTube channel. Um, but long story short, we've sort of grown and progressed in our scribing and guilloche or scraping capability from uh, sort of manual machining processes where you're shaping and scribing manually to uh, doing it on a CNC machine with a fixed tool like what we were doing on the Pyramid Nano and still do on the Pyramid Nano. Uh, And then now we've um, moved to using the spindle as a C-axis or a programmable axis uh, in the micro HD, which allows you to generate really, really interesting and uh, productive patterns. Um, but also it does have some industrial applications and um, the precision problem aspect from it is that I didn't quite realize this getting into into this project, but it's a, it's a precision chain just like precision machining is. And um, unfortunately, because it's a very esoteric process, there's not much information about how to go about creating this chain to the extent where you don't even know that some links even exist. So without, you know, I'll stop being vague, but you, you, you start on one end with pattern generation or toolpath creation and pattern generation is sort of if you're doing guilloche for example you need to generate these these patterns and that's that's tricky it's not it's not straightforward sketches in fusion only take you so far and being able to uh yeah i hate i hate the word but like procedurally generate or if you're you know, utilize software to drive splines and equation-driven sort of modulations. That that all needs to be established somehow. And we we ended up using Rhino and Grasshopper to drive a lot of these patterns, and that's worked really well. So this is like a non-standard CAD suite that's actually more on a on the design side. It's like architectural design, and we're using that to generate these patterns. So if you're doing guilloche, you sort of have to have to generate all this. Uh, on, yeah, you have to create this link in the precision chain. But if you're going and doing like uh, some sort of in industrial projects, like let's say micro deburring of parts or things like that, generally CAD CAM suites can generate your toolpath. But the next link in the chain is your post processor and you know, having a post-processor that does exactly what you want uh, in, in outputting these like tangential moves is, yeah, really, really tricky. Um, so, you know, we had to find someone who was willing to take the challenge on and uh, Scott from from CAD Pro, you know, bit the bullet and he, he created a very special post for us. And then you sort of start looking at the machine and the machine's split up between sort of the kinematics of the machine and the control of the machine uh, and the tooling that you use and both of those problems are not so easy to to solve and um, maybe this is a really good segue to to push our listeners to the video where I'll probably expand on the tooling and the the machine usage um, a lot more so yeah that's been our last like two or three months trying to figure this out and to date we're the only people in the world who are doing this on a micro HD um, outside of one watchmaking company in Switzerland um, 
but they they they're using it on a on a HSK twenty five machine. So I feel I still feel unique being able to use it on an HSK forty machine. I can't imagine like even within the watch industry using the the spindle as a c axis in the machine is that doesn't seem like it'd be all that common just because like you said there's an enormous amount of hurdles yeah there's like some yeah it's it's tough because a lot of the yeah this is this is the real clincher a lot of the people that have developed this are really secretive about it because they don't want their customers to have their like illusion of handmade be popped you know, um, some some guy hunched over a hundred year old guilloche machine. Yeah, that's what everyone wants. But what you quickly realize is that's not really possible on scale, and you either have to pay for that and buy a watch from Josh Shapiro, or you know, that's an American watchmaker or someone from Switzerland who's known for that type of work. Or if you're a big company, you have to bite the bullet and either stamp or coin the patterns into into the dials or cut them with a cnc machine so it has been developed but it's ultra secretive and what you find is that this type of technology usually gets developed as a standalone machine so it's not really like a spindle it is more like a c-axis and it's not really a tool changing machine and so on um, like willamin historically have been able to do this type of work uh, and their modern machines do it on an industrial scale um, but it's that's still such a small small subset of watchmaking uh, so it's not definitely not new it's been done before but it's it's uh, not been I guess executed in the public domain like I've I've shown <laughs> well kudos to you for sharing uh, it's been really interesting to watch I've toyed around trying to get my mori to do it a few times and by the time you realize what all needs to happen to get that to do it out of cam it's <laughs> you just kind of close the laptop and walk away uh, <laughs> and so it's really cool to see you pulled off thanks adam that's kind of you to say And thank you for listening to episode 18 of the Precision Microcast, where your hosts uh, Adam Demuth over in Ohio and Josh Hacko here in Sydney, Australia. And uh, we really appreciate your time and listening. And uh, we highly recommend you go to our Instagram page where you'll see some visual content that will accompany both the machine uh machine tool segment as well as sort of precision history and precision problem segments so thank you again for listening and we'll see you guys next time bye